The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Special welcome to anybody who's new tonight. Once a month, I just remind folks how the center operates. Most of you know already, but I'll just review that for anybody who's new. So we don't talk too much about the operation of the center. And we try to operate with this principle that all the programs are offered freely as a free gift. And then anybody who contributes or volunteers here, that's also a free gift. And even though we don't talk about it, Common Ground is like any other small nonprofit in terms of having paid staff and a building and supporting the teachers. And so it's just up to everybody to find a way to be part of the community in a way that makes you happy. And the idea is when you come and take a program, like coming on Sunday night, that it's not easy, but we practice receiving it as a free gift. There are no strings attached. It's not like something tricky is going on. It's just a program that's offered freely. And of course, the reason we can do that is because of the support that's come in in the past. And our job, and again, it's not easy, is to receive it as a free gift. And it should be, if we do a good job at this, be a cause for happiness. It's nice to receive free gifts with no strings attached. And then if ever you want to give back, volunteer your time or contribute money, then that's a free gift. It's not because you receive something, oh, I have to give something, because that's a business relationship. So when you give, Really think of it as a free gift. You're giving money, you're putting money in the donation bowl because it makes you happy to support the teachers, support the staff, support the building, support what we do here. And you're giving because you can, you've got money to give, some people don't. You're giving because you can and because it makes you happy. And that way, in the receiving, it should be a cause for happiness and the giving should be a cause for happiness. And we've been operating this way now for 22 years, and it works. And we don't talk about it too much, once a month usually. And we, you know, we figure new people will eventually figure out how it all works. And there's no right or wrong way to do it. Some people who've been around, they put themselves on a schedule. They maybe go online and have an automatic deduction from their credit card or arrange with their bank to give or just contribute one, whatever schedule makes sense to them. And other people don't have a schedule. They just sort of, it's just spontaneous. When they feel like it, they contribute. And when they don't, they don't. So if you have any questions about it, there is a sheet of paper out on the shelf under the bulletin board. You can take that. It'll give you a little bit more information. Or just check with me, Gail Iverson, our bookkeeper and a longtime teacher and leader here. She works on Tuesdays. So you can contact the center on Tuesday. Or Shelley, our office manager, is around a couple days of the week. And you can get more information from them. So we've been looking at this, I find, very powerful list coming out of the Buddhist tradition called the Ten Paramis. And it's a way of understanding, I mean, it's neat in the tradition because it's what are the qualities that you need to be a Buddha? You know, and so they say, well, you need to be generous. You need this deep, pervading commitment to non-harming, this commitment to truthfulness. You need a lot of energy need a lot of resoluteness, you need to let go, you need equanimity, you need patience, you need loving kindness. And one other quality that I'm forgetting, I always forget one. What? Wisdom. Yeah, that's not a good one to forget. <laughs> and you need wisdom. So these ten qualities, now you could come up with another list, but whatever list you came up with, it would pretty much cover the same qualities. You might have different words, you might have seven or twelve that pretty much we'd come up with most of these qualities if we thought about what qualities are both protecting for us, keep us out of trouble, and what qualities um, are enlivening and enlightening for us. And in, in the Buddhist tradition, we think about what qualities take us across the floods of life. It's an image the Buddha used a lot to describe states of suffering. We get literally swept away by our habit energy. You look at me the wrong way or you yawn one too many times, 
and my mind starts to get swept away. Maybe this talk isn't very interesting. Maybe this person doesn't like me or doesn't like the sound of my voice or, right? And I can start obsessing and worrying and being afraid or whatever it might be that gets us in that state of being swept away into some kind of negative mental emotional pattern. And you can, you, we want to think of each of these ten qualities because we're working our way through them as a kind of pivot, or not pivot, more more like a grounding in a a literal reality, right? We call it wisdom or right view, a way to ground in right view that's very protecting, or you could say, gives us an immunity from being swept away by negative patterns. So the first one we talked about earlier in the summer was generosity. And you know, it's like when we're established in that state, remember generosity isn't something, it's like a, it's a view or way of being where it's like we're literally feeling we have something to give. Our goodness, our time, our good wishes. But we're feeling generous. So there's a sense of abundance, an inner abundance, which is an opposite mind state from feeling stingy and needy, right? So when we're in that state of inner abundance, we're protected from what we do when we're in a stingy frame of mind. When I'm in a stingy frame of mind, all kinds of, I act out in all kinds of little and not so little ways. I was mentioning this morning when I gave the talk, I noticed yesterday we had a workshop on white privilege here and, and the connection between the experience of white privilege and Dharma practice, this path of awakening that the Buddha taught. It's really great. And, uh, I made lunch for my wife and me and, and I noticed when we were separating our sandwiches, I had almond butter and banana and one set of sandwiches, you know, two pieces of bread cut in half and then cheese and tomato and the other. And, uh, one was a little bigger and I noticed I took the bigger one and I noticed that I took the bigger one and I noticed that that stinginess didn't feel good. You know, I, and I had my rationalizations, of course, like I needed it <laughs> or whatever. And um, so just to notice that frame of mind of being the one. Now, had I given the other, like even if I did feel stingy and wanted it, you know, it's a different experience. Like to know that I feel that neediness, but I know that it's just that feeling of neediness. And to be able to go beyond it, right, that's a different reality. Now I'm inhabiting the reality, the mind or the view that knows that the stinginess is just stinginess. I don't have to live it out, right? I don't have to act it out. I feel it, but I know the mind has like more space. That's just that stingy, being the middle child of seven kids. My parents like, I don't eat meat much now, but as a kid, it was like a big deal. Like, you know, never enough. Always, about, at least with the good things. My parents grew up in the depression. Some of you had parents who grew up in the depression. And even when they didn't need to be, they had a stingy mentality because it was like an imprint in their mind from their parents. Growing up in the Dust Bowl, both of them grew up in farms in North Dakota and Montana, so they were children during that time where there actually was not a lot around. And, uh, you know, and then they, we get in, infected by whatever sort of patterns exist in them. And then, we don't have kids, but maybe I'm infecting my cat. Hopefully I'm not infecting you. <laughs> it's good to talk about it though, <laughs> right? Just to kind of bring it out. So it's really empowering to notice it. Even in that case where I acted it out, even that is good. Like just feeling the effect of that minor stinginess, taking the bigger half of the cheese and tomato sandwich, just noticing that in my mind is useful because I'm, I've learned something. That is a tight place to inhabit. In those moments when I saw it and I ended up taking the bigger half, I inhabited 
a particular worldview, right? I was a particular mark, particular needy mark. And because there was some mindfulness there, I noticed what a tight place that is. Right? And I learned. So even though I, it might have been better had I felt, oh, that's a tight place. I don't want to inhabit that place. You know that line from, I think it's one of Rumi's poems. Something like, uh, fear is the smallest room in the house. I'd like to see you with better accommodations. Anybody hear that poem? It's a great, yeah, I don't remember the name of the poem, but there's a line close to that. Like, fear is the smallest room in the house. I'd like to see you with better accommodations. And it's really the feeling like to myself or to each other when we see, you know, either ourselves or another in that stingy place. Oh, instead of like judging the person like, oh, that's a really narrow, tight world to be inhabiting. It would be nice for you, for me, to be in a more generous, bigger space, bigger view, wouldn't it? So we want to think of all of these qualities of generosity. The next one is sila, which is this deep, resonant commitment to non-harming, the integrity or commitment of non-harming through speech, through our possessions, through our sexual activity, our words, and... um, yeah, all those ways that we can live in ways that cause harm. We want to see this as a movement toward happiness, not something we should do. So now the third parmi, the third perfection of the heart, has to do with renunciation. And again, it, you hear it, you think, renunciation, okay, yeah, maybe I need to let go. But we want to see it, not, no, not that I need to let go, but letting go, renouncing, and in particular, the thing we renounce is attachment, or fixed states of mind, fixed views. And we want to see that as freedom. We want to notice all the places where the mind is fixed, attached, as, oh, that's a cause for suffering. And all the places we notice where the mind is less attached or not attached, we want to directly and immediately notice there's some freedom there. Right? Like we might be attached to some opinion about a particular politician. And you may be right in some way, but the attachment, the fixedness of our view is suffering, even if you're right. You know, you might have a view that billionaires who use their money to perpetuate their power and wealth at the expense of other beings are wrong. But getting tight about that view means you're suffering And not only that, it means that we're likely to perpetuate the suffering of others. But it doesn't mean the views, it doesn't mean that is wrong, factually wrong, but that the attachment, the mind being dependent on being right, that's the suffering. So it's not about not having views, because that could just be another fixed view. You shouldn't have it, I could be up here, with my big fixed view, you shouldn't have fixed views. I've been telling you for years, stop having fixed views, right? And you you would pick up like, he's crazed. You know, he's off. He's suffering. And the wiser in the group would go, he's really suffering. I care about him. You know, like, oh boy, fixed views. Fear is a really small room. May you inhabit a more spacious place, right? That would be a wise response to seeing somebody propagating fixed views. And that's basically what we do. Somebody comes at us with a fixed view and we react by having a fixed view that either this is the right view or your fixed view is wrong. You shouldn't be so fixed. But one way or another, we reinforce each other's fixed views by either reacting or getting on board with. 
So the joy, this is why we want to talk about the joy in all ten of these qualities, the joy of generosity, the joy in non-harming, this commitment to not harm, the joy in renunciation, the joy in this commitment to truthfulness and wisdom and energy and resoluteness and equanimity and patience and loving kindness, these ten qualities, that they're, it's a way sort of that instead of being swept away, that's why I'm using that image of like us you know, establishing ourselves in ground. You know, often in Buddhism we don't talk about solid ground, you know, because we're talking about just letting things be. You know, nature is just nature, it's unfolding. And that's a useful teaching too. Remember, none of the teachings are metaphysical truths. This is an aside. So in the Dharma, in the teachings of the Buddha, we don't, don't take any of the teachings that I say or that you read that the Buddha has said as like, this is the absolute truth. These are relative truths, right? So that's why sometimes you hear, go right, and other times you hear, go left. Because sometimes we, we're way over to the left and we need to be told to go to the right. And sometimes we're way veered off to the right and we need to be told to go to the left. And of course, we'll only know what the right instruction is by having some mindful sense of how it is right now. Then we know, oh, the mind's really tight in anger. The Buddha used the image that there's no grip like anger. There's no fire, no burning like craving. There's no net like confusion or delusion. You know, these different ways we get swept away. We get caught in the grip of anger, in the burning of desire. If only, if only I got that house, that little perfect cabin on the south shore of Lake Superior, right? And only had to do what I wanted to do. Oh, then I'd be happy. Aren't we sure that is there anybody in the room who doesn't have a if only, then I'd be happy? Right? That that idea is burning. Right? Because basically you're saying, no, it's not this. This moment, no happiness here. But if only this. So if only the world were this way, if only I looked this way, if only I had this, if only I could become this person, this wise person, this calm person, then I'd be happy. If only my partner was this way, treated me this way, then I'd be happy. If only the world became this way, then I'd be happy. So we call that postponement or dukkha, suffering. It was real suffering. And it's tricky. You know, the Buddha was very compassionate. He understood that if there wasn't actually gratification from pursuing sense experience like the if-onlys, if we didn't actually get some juice from it, we wouldn't be attached, but we actually do get something when we have an if-only. If only I could be home in bed. You know, and we get home and we get in bed and it does feel good. Or if only I could have some ice cream. Or if only... You know, I had this success. And then we get it and temporarily it feels good. So because there actually is a pleasantness of gratification, like getting rid of what we don't want. You know, you have a hangnail or you have some food in your tooth and you finally get home and you get your floss out, get rid of it. It feels so nice. These simple, silly things feel good. Let alone the bigger things. So the Buddha said, if there wasn't actually gratification, beings would not be attached. If there weren't actually drawbacks to attachment, beings would not suffer, would not be in states of suffering. If there wasn't actually release, there wouldn't be liberated beings. So it's true that we do get some juice from it, and it's also true that there are drawbacks. And then another discourse, he was really one of my favorites, 
he's uh, talking to Ananda, who is his attendant and cousin and also a Buddhist monk, as a follower of the Buddha. And Ananda is known for somebody who was very social, which is not necessarily very cool for the nuns and monks to be social because they're sort of supposed to be into seclusion and quiet. And But he liked to talk and liked to be with the lay people and to support, excuse me, to support them. Anyway, he had been chatting with these lay people and he thought what they had to say was interesting, so he brought them to the Buddha and he reports to the Buddha that the householders were saying, we are householders who indulge in sensuality, right? Indulge in getting what we like. And we um, delight in getting what we like. And not only do we delight, we enjoy it, and we rejoice in the things we like. And this is kind of our world, right? When we talk to our friends, a lot of what we're talking about is, hey, there's a great restaurant. Have you have you been there? Or, oh, this new program in HBO. Or to come see my bike. I got this new bike. It's great. We delight in sense experiences. We delight in our friends. We delight in working out. We delight in not working out. We delight in vacations. We delight in entertainments. We delight in food. We delight in body work. What else do we delight in? Right? Nice interactions. Positive changes in the world. We delight in that. You know, if there was some huge movement and all the countries got together and decided to cut back on carbon emissions, you know, if that just happened in the next week, we would delight in that, wouldn't we? And then in two years' time, if things started to change for the positive with the environment, or if the country really started to wake up and own and feel deeply the racial injustice and other kinds of inequities, we would feel good about that. It would actually feel good. When those happen. So we would delight. We'd enjoy that, right? And then, so then the lay people say, and Ananda's reporting this to the Buddha, yet I've heard that in this doctrine and discipline, right, and those who are following what you're teaching, Venerable Sir, that the young ones, even young people, young nuns, young monks, their hearts leap up at renunciation, right? Because that's what happens even today, but especially at the time of the Buddha. You know, young people, normally heavily into the pursuit of sense pleasures, shave their heads, take off their lay clothes and put on some ordinary robes, which are just sheets. I don't know if you've seen Buddhist monks and nuns, but they tie a sheet around their waist like a skirt and then throw a sheet around their upper body and then they have an extra sheet to keep them warm when it's cool in the tropics. And that's it, shaved head, no sex, one meal a day. Sometimes they have a light meal early in the morning and then a bigger meal, no eating afternoon, basically. All their possessions are those robes and a bowl to hold their food in, a spoon, and a few other minor implements, and that's it for their possessions. Now, these days there's some changes to that, but basically still quite simple lifestyle. And so the lay people saying, and yet there are yet these young people whose hearts seem to leap up at the idea of renunciation and we don't get it. It just seems like contradictory to what is part of our mainstream culture. So that's what these lay people were saying to Ananda and now Ananda is reporting this to the Buddha. And then what does the Buddha say? And he says, so it is, so it is. Even I myself, before my deep insight, before I woke up, had my deep insight, became a Buddha, I too, my heart also didn't leap up at renunciation. And he says, you know, even though I understood it, it made sense to me, like probably it does for most of us. Most of us understand, intellectually at least, being attached to fixed views, being attached, like being dependent on having everything we think we need to be happy is dangerous right, or tight. It makes sense, but yet we still think we need that. We still think we need our comforts. I do, right? I I'm, I find it very poignant how much I like how comfortable my house is. You know, I 
have a house. It's really nice. It's really comfortable. It's pleasant. I don't have kids. Just a cat and my partner. And it's simple and nice. And I don't want it to go away. I'm dependent on it. I know that. Right? But I know that being dependent on it makes me afraid of something happening to it. Like somebody breaking in and taking my stuff. Or fire burning it down. Or whatever else might happen. Like even the fact that a lot of people don't have nice homes is a threat to me. Because then I feel like I have to feel guilty having something nice when so many people don't. Right? So the Buddha says, my heart didn't leap up at it. And then... But it made sense that the attachment was right. So I asked myself, so the Buddha's thinking out loud in front of he's referring back to his practice before he had deep insight. Why isn't my heart leaping up at renunciation? Because it makes sense intellectually, the happiness of non-attachment. But yet I don't want to go there. Why not? And then, because he was reflecting deeply in the same way that we can, he came to the, his mind came to this conclusion. My heart doesn't leap up at renunciation because I haven't taken the time to deeply see, experience the danger in the attachment to sense experience. Because when I think about having ice cream when I go home, or, you know, having entertainments when I go home, or being comfortable in my bed when I go home, I notice the pleasantness of the imagining getting that, right? But I don't pay attention to the fact that right now my heart, my mind's dependent, thinks that I'll be happy when I get it. That's suffering. We don't pay attention to the unpleasantness of attachment. We don't make it the theme in the mind. We don't become mindful of the pain, the weight of attachment. Like you might have a a dear friend or a partner in your life and love them deeply. And there's nothing wrong with loving them deeply. But to whatever degree you're dependent on them for your happiness, then you're afraid of losing them. And that fear is something that's happening right now in your heart and mind. But that doesn't mean you're paying attention to it. And just because we don't know that we're suffering doesn't mean we're not suffering. Doesn't Just because we don't know that there's the unhappiness of attachment, the weight of attachment, doesn't mean our heart isn't burdened by it. It's like we can live, a lot of people live their whole life unaware of their fear of death, right? Until that moment. But that doesn't mean that their whole life wasn't burdened by their fear of death. Just because they didn't consciously acknowledge the fear. So if you make that a theme of your practice, like as you're being more sensitive, more awake in your life, more mindful in your life, then maybe the theme should be like noticing how attachment hurts. Noticing the ouch. Whatever you're attached to. You're attached to being on time to work tomorrow. That hurts. You're attached to somebody noticing you at work, noticing your new shoes or appreciating your good work. Well, it doesn't mean that that person shouldn't notice your good work, but the attachment hurts. That's just the reality. It's not a value judgment, like it shouldn't hurt or it should hurt. It's just the reality that attachment hurts. So in Buddhist, in the Buddhist teachings, he's asking you to check out Isn't it true that attachment always hurts? And when it doesn't hurt, it's because it's not attachment. You've misdiagnosed. The mind isn't attached. Because when it is attached, it hurts. It's synonymous. It's like, that's how you know the mind is attached because on some level, however subtle, there's suffering. When the mind is fixed, attached, identified, taking something personally, then that grip, that attachment, is experienced as being weightful, psychically weightful, heavy, hard to bear, 
which is the word, the definition of the word dukkha, hard to bear, unsatisfactory. And this is the other thing he realized that he didn't do, why his heart didn't leap up at renunciation, because now he goes and he says, and the other thing I haven't taken up as a theme of investigation is the joy of non-attachment. I haven't studied it. I haven't contemplated it. I haven't noticed it. Right? And then he goes on, he says, and then when I did take up the theme of looking at the weight of attachment, the drawbacks of attachment, and the joy of renunciation, then everything opened up. And my practice opened up. And I realized the freedom that I realized. I became the Buddha, right? The Buddha is, it's just, it's a title. It just means Buddha. The word just means awake, one who is awake. And I became awake. And the definition of being awake, like we always have these sort of funny ideas of what enlightenment is. Enlightenment is not a good translation of the word vermuti. Awake is better. Um, But there is this word in the West, you know, in English, enlightenment. It predates, of course, knowing about Buddhism, right? It was this word back in the Renaissance, enlightenment. And it's nice. I mean, there's some nice aspects of that word enlightenment, but it's really awakening or the cessation of what limits the mind. What limits the mind is greed, anger, and delusion. So the technical, the Buddha's definition of awakening is the cessation of greed, anger, and delusion in the mind, or the cessation, the passing away of whatever limits the heart or mind, whatever constrains it. That's what enlightenment awakening is. Now we have moments of relative awakening, right? Where our mind, relatively speaking, is not colored by limitations, not constrained by what gives us a narrow view. Like stinginess gives us a narrow view, right? Or thinking I'm better than you limits my world. When I'm sitting up here thinking I'm better than you, I'm living in a narrow, limited, heavy state. Because now I'm threatened by anything you do well. Threatens that view. Like, you can't do that well. Because that doesn't fit this idea that I'm better than you. Or even when I think I'm worse than you. You know, that's a limited state too. I'm no good. So we have all kinds of ways we limit. So if we notice that any attachment is heavy and that non-attachment is enlivening and liberating, freeing, and we pay attention to that all day long. So you can just, like in terms of renunciation, we're not renouncing our lunch tomorrow, but you might renounce your lunch to notice that your mind is dependent on the idea that at 12 noon I get to eat. There's nothing wrong with that as an idea in our mind. There's nothing neurotic about the idea I get to eat every day at noon. But when your mind gets fixed on that idea, right, takes it personally, like there's actually a me who gets to eat every day at noon, then that tightness is suffering. And the way you know it's tight is don't eat one day at noon, right? Just wait until dinner. And then you'll notice how attached the mind is to that idea. Because it's just an idea. And of course, I'm not saying there wouldn't be sensations in your body too. But all these things that we hold to, we can begin to to play with. Well, maybe I'll eat at noon and maybe I won't. Maybe I'll wake up tomorrow, maybe I won't. Maybe people will treat me right. Maybe they won't. Maybe my partner loves me. Maybe she doesn't. Maybe she'll be there forever. Maybe she won't. Maybe I'll live to be 85 and die in my sleep or die consciously or whatever our vision is for a good death. Or maybe I won't. So it doesn't mean that I'm not going to try to have a good life. It just means that in trying to have a good life, I'm not going to erroneously assume that being attached actually helps me have a good life. 
So maybe you want some wealth in your life so you have some financial security. The attachment, the mind being dependent on that vision has nothing to do with whether you earn a good living or whether you have success, financial success in your life. It's just a dead weight, being attached to the idea that I need to have money in order to be happy has nothing to do with whether you end up having money. It's just a heaviness in your mind. Being attached to, you know, my cat coming on my lap when I want her to be on my lap, right? That doesn't help her train her to do what I want. It's just that neediness itself is just tightness in my mind and heart and often in my body. And that we can learn by noticing the freedom in letting go and the happiness in, I mean, the yeah, the happiness in letting go and the suffering and attachment. We actually have to get interested. And like the Ajahn Chah says, this very famous line, if we, get, if we let go a little, we have like in a particular place in our life, like a neediness around our partner. You know how it is. We have all these little... Needing them, or if you don't have a live-in partner, then just a friend, like needing them to notice things about us or needing them to whatever. If we let go of that attachment a little, we have a little bit more freedom, a little bit more space in mind. If we let go of that attachment a lot, we have a lot more freedom in that particular place. And if we let go completely, we're free in that place. There's no suffering. They treat us the way we like, Great. They treat us the way we don't like. That's okay too, because my mind's not dependent on them being the way I like. There are a lot of things I like. Right? Like I like people to stay to the very end. Sometimes people leave, maybe they have good reasons when we start the discussion time. I really like people to stay to the end, but I'm learning that when people leave early, it's okay. It's not what I prefer. Right? I really like it when my left knee doesn't hurt. But I'm learning to be okay that there's this stiffness and pain in my left knee now as I get older. So I don't have to be dependent on having a body that doesn't have a left knee that aches. Because when you have a left knee that aches, being dependent on that not aching is like a, a layer of suffering. In Buddhism, we call it the second arrow. You know this simile? It's like we're a human being. We naturally get hit with darts, I think is the... And then a suffering being, a person that, without much wisdom, as soon as you get hit with a normal dart, like you're in traffic or you have a knee that hurts, then you take another dart and you stick it in because I don't like having that dart. I don't like having a knee that hurts, so I'm going to get tight about having a knee that hurts. That's the second dart. You don't need the second dart. You can't avoid the first dart. As a human being, difficult things happen and pleasant things happen. It's just, it's literally the definition of being a living being. Pleasant things happen, neutral things happen, unpleasant things happen. That's what happens as a human being, a living being. And then a neurotic being is somebody who gets tight when pleasant things happen, we get tight because we don't want it to end. And when unpleasant things happen, we get tight because we want it to end. And when neutral things happen, we even get tight when neutral things happen. I don't care about this. It's neutral. I want something interesting, like something bad that I want to go away or something good that I want to last or get. So we just get tight is what we do. Sylvia Burstein, who wrote a nice book if you want a good background for these ten paramis. There's several good books. This one you have to buy. The others you can actually download, but it's Pay Attention for Goodness Sake, Practicing the Perfections of the Heart, the Buddhist Path of Kindness. Sylvia Burstein is a well-known teacher at Spirit Rock and uh, has written a number of great books on Buddhism. And then uh, Ajahn Sushito wrote a book called Paramis, the Paramis Crossing Life's Floods. And that one you can download. If you have trouble, let me know. I'll t- I can help you track that down. But anyway, in her book, 
She says, desire pulls so hard, it's surprising to find that it's empty. And this is the thing. When we're attached to getting rid of something or to getting something, that attachment, that desire, craving to get or get rid of, it pulls. We think it's real. And what the Buddha is encouraging us to do is to notice that feeling of craving, of wanting to get rid of, wanting to get. Keep noticing it. Keep noticing it. Keep noticing it. And notice that it goes away without actually having gotten rid of what you don't like or gotten what you do like. Craving ceases without gratification. This is a powerful insight. And literally, it is life transforming. This is why if people, like in any spiritual tradition, beings, human beings, have experimented with fasting, with celibacy, with shutting the TV off, right? Like, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm not going to turn the radio on and I'm not going to turn the TV on until at least 12.01, right? Tomorrow. And it's not like watching TV is bad or listening to the radio is bad. But I want to notice that desire for entertainment and see it and see it cease without turning the TV on. I don't have to have that cigarette, have to have that beer, have to have the ice cream, have to have the TV show, have to talk to my friend or whatever it is that we desire that we can actually see the birth of the desire, like the really wanting, and it gets big, of course, especially when we don't act it out. We don't get what we want. It gets really big because the mind, that habit of desiring, will play every card. It has no shame, right? Because it will start thinking, yeah, but if you don't eat lunch, maybe you won't want dinner. You know, it's just like tries to scare us. What, are you never going to watch another TV show the rest of your life? No, I'm just going to notice this desire to watch TV tonight and see it. It's just a thought. It's just this feeling. Can this actually be okay? I'm not saying it's pleasant. It's not pleasant. It's unpleasant. But can this unpleasant feeling of wanting to watch TV be okay? And we sit there with it and we open to it. And you might open, you might uh, be surprised by how deep and intense that feeling can be. But I guarantee, but you have to check it out for yourself, that it will be there and then at some point it will cease. You don't actually have to watch, turn the TV on or whatever it is for it to cease. It will cease on its own. Same with any attraction you have. Things cease. That's what they do. They start, they arise, and then they cease. And the ignorance around craving is, it won't cease unless I get it. But you know, that's just not true. There are so many desires we've had that we haven't gratified, and they've gone away. Right? Some of you wanted to be president when you were a kid. I wanted to save the world when I was you know, younger. I was going to become an economist and join the United Nations, figure things out. (laughs) Then I woke up. (laughs) But we all had these ideas of like, and we realized that, yeah, maybe, maybe not. Maybe I don't have to be that person, become that person. Maybe happiness is more about letting go, right? So this is the Buddha's vision from his own experience. It's like there's the happiness of getting what we want, which is also saying getting rid of what we don't want, right? So there's the happiness of attachment, pursuing attachment. That's one kind of happiness. And then there's the happiness of non-attachment, not being dependent We still have our preferences, right? As long as we're a living being, we're going to have our preferences. So it's not about not, you know, liking some entertainment. It's about not being dependent on getting what we like, not being dependent on getting rid of what we don't like. 
Now, intellectually, we can imagine that's real freedom. I mean, there's real power, like even something simple like the pain in my knee, there's real power in being okay with feeling my body as it is, like when you get sick. There's a real power in like being okay. Okay, now the body's sick. We're not fighting it. We're not denying the fact. We're just inhabiting the experience of being sick. Okay, this is what happens to living beings. They get sick. I can receive this. I can embody it. I'll do what I can do. It will last for a while. Probably it will cease. And I'm not going to struggle. I'm not going to blame. I'm going to be pragmatic. Do what I can do and let go. And there's so much freedom in that. The happiness of non-attachment. The happiness of... And this is obviously the nth degree means you're a Buddha. So it means moving in this, this direction. And we move in this direction because we're doing what the Buddha suggests. We're noticing the joy in all the little places in our life where there's a little less attachment and we're discerning how there's a little bit more lightness, a little bit more freedom. And all the places in life where there is attachment, there is a fixed view, we're noticing it's literally a prison. It's a weight. It's suffering. And so nature, life, it will teach us exactly what we need to know, but we have to be Mindful. We have to be awake. Otherwise, we don't learn anything. We'll pursue our desires forever unless we notice that there's more happiness in not being pushed around by desires than there is in the the off chance we're going to get that we gratify our desires. Because sometimes we do, and we get a little hit in being able to gratify our desires. We want to be a movie star, and we become a movie star. We want to be beautiful, and everybody sees us as beautiful. We want to be wealthy, and we're wealthy. We want to get in shape, and we get in shape. We want to get rid of the warts, and we get rid of the warts. So there is some gratification, but there's always more where that came from. That's the thing about pursuing cravings. There's no end to it. So I'll leave it here. We have about 10 minutes. It'd be nice to hear from some of you what you've learned about renouncing attachment or what you've learned about the suffering related to attachment. And of course, any questions you might have about the talk tonight. And Alan has the mic. He'll pass it out to you. Remember to point it right at your mouth so that we can all hear you. So thoughts about this topic of renunciation. What have you learned? What questions do you have? You've been in this world of being swept away by these floods of craving. What has life taught you? Successes and failures. Yeah, Brad. Wait for the mic though, Brad. I had a comment about something you started with that uh, I thought about this morning. When I run, I find that it's much easier to run if I start an argument in my head and I can run faster and less, with less discomfort. And it struck me that, uh, well, it's a good technique for that, but, <laughs> uh, but I have gotten better at getting angry, so there's a cost to it. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope, I'm assuming you're just kidding about I mean, it is true that it's effective that when we're doing something we find unpleasant, the mind finds it really useful to get absorbed in something. And generally what's easy to get absorbed in is something that has some drama. And negativity has drama. Yes. But we don't really appreciate the the cost of that, like the tension that's involved in it. Because... It's doing its job, like you suggest. You know, it's like taking the attention off the unpleasantness of the body when we're running and getting absorbed in some drama. And like you say, it just, it's not only is that itself the second dart, right? Like there's the tension of the drama, which hurts, 
and there's the uh, increased habit like to do that to think that dwelling in ill will leads somewhere other than the unpleasantness of ill will it makes the mind go there more often with more gusto it it came to me when i was starting to do that with driving there are lots of times in driving that yeah, distraction would be nice or a non-attachment and the a non-attachment over the situation is working much better in terms of my being peaceful yeah and it's your point Brad is not a small point because it it really I'll just kind of bring it into sitting because when we're doing our formal meditation we're dropping into the experience on purpose but it's often unpleasant because unless we're doing more of a concentration practice where we're directing the attention, what we're feeling is often unpleasant. So there's going to be a strong compulsion in the mind to do some mental activity to get away from feeling the effect of having been pushed around by craving all day long. Because the residual effect in the body and the mind is unpleasant. So we need a tolerance to stay with the experience or do some concentration practice. Use an anchor like the sensations of breathing in, the sensations of breathing out until there's more stability so that your mind is willing to be intimate with the way it is because it's not often pleasant. Did you notice that like even tonight when I invite people or you invite yourself to come into the experience of the body there is that residual of mental tension that's sort of living on in the body, in the heart. It's like this. And so the mind wants to run, like Brad is suggesting, including into negative states because they're engaging. And then at least I won't have to feel what I feel because I'll be lost in thought. Well, not to hog the mic, but on my way to Common Ground tonight, I was at a stoplight and somebody hit me from behind. Now, now I wasn't hurt, but immediately I thought, okay, I'm late to common ground. Who will set up the hall? There were all sorts of things. And, and instead I went to, because I wasn't hurt, I'll go back and nurture the fellow who hit me because it's an awful feeling to do that too. And I was very happy with my ability to improve his day. Yeah even though I also thought about the insurance and all that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I was in a pretty good mood yeah. and knowing that I was doing something nice. So. And then also just because it's such a good example here, like to really notice, and you can still do this in hindsight, you already did it, sounds like, to some degree, but to really notice the non-attachment because you could have made a big drama about the idiot who hit you, right? Mm-hmm. And we tend not to notice those moments of non-attachment. You weren't attached to that drama, right? It didn't yes. stick in the mind. The mind didn't pick it up. I'm sure there was the impulse because we're all conditioned to, you know, that sort of justifiable anger or irritation. But the, the fact that the mind didn't take the bait, we want to clearly see there's freedom in not doing that. Like uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, some of you know, he's a very well-known Vietnamese Buddhist monk. He's pretty old now, mid-late 80s. But he has this great line about, we have to notice the non-toothaches. We notice toothaches. But do you notice when you don't have a toothache? We don't. But as a practitioner, as a student of the Buddhist teachings, we're being asked to notice the non-toothaches. To notice that, 20 years ago, you might have had a big drama. But now, having practiced for a long time, no drama. And you want to really notice there's that's freedom. That's the fruit of understanding, little by little, attachment. Attachments are unnecessary. Yeah, thanks, Brad. Those are great sharings. Time for maybe one more before we need to end. Any other thoughts for the group? What have you been learning or questions you might have? Anything come to mind? Yeah. Hi, I'm Tom. Uh, I am becoming aware of my attachment to 
my home and my possessions and I'm at a point in my life where I'm going to have to change and downsize. And my meditation room is very nice. <laughs> it's got a nice cushion and a very good chair and um, it's cool in there. And I feel as if I won't be able to reach good meditative states if I have to be in another room, especially a small one full of fear. And uh, it is very difficult to just sit there and contemplate, okay, this is going to change, and how might it change? And... Uh, I have not yet figured out how to be with that completely. So that's all I have. Yeah, but it, but you know, it's like ripe in your mind. Same, let's take another really big one and then we'll end. Fear of death. We all know we're gonna die. To all, to, to whatever degree, that fact is unnerving, right? There's some fear there. But choosing to be unaware of it, choosing to pretend like it's not going to happen to me, we have to see that like attachment to not dying, that doesn't, doesn't change things. So like to welcome it in, to become more intimate, like to live our life knowing that there's death, knowing that there's no, that we don't know what it is, knowing that we're afraid of it, is enlivening and liberating. Having to constantly keep it suppressed and to be unaware of it is hard work and stressful. So everything, like uh, renunciation is more about knowing that everything goes away. It's not like, oh, i got to give everything away. No, it's like everything is going to go away. So how to live knowing everything's going to go away? And there's a lot of freedom. I'll just give an example from a movie that I thought was so poignant. It's a beautiful movie. If you ever get a chance, uh, it's called Black Robe. And it's about uh, the French Jesuits coming into uh, Quebec, uh, but before it was Canada, back in like the 1600s, and interacting with the, the, the original people here in North America. And... Uh, but there's this one uh, Native American character in the film and uh, he's been wounded and uh, he comes, they pull off in this island on, in the St. Lawrence River in the canoes and he recognizes his place for the first time. He hasn't been here before as the vision he's been the dreaming his whole life. And he, he gets it like, oh yeah, this is the place I die. And, and he remembers... Or he, he has this thought, if only I knew that this vision I've been having in my dreams all these years, I wouldn't have been afraid my whole life. Right? It's, and basically I, what I hear him saying is like, if only I knew I was going to die all the way along, I wouldn't have been afraid. Well, we know that. And it's true with our cars, they're going to get scratched and our, cell phones are going to get obsolete and our bodies are going to get flabby and it's all going to happen. So we can say yes to that, not because it's pleasant, because it's true. And we can start cultivating a non-attachment, not needing things to be other than they are, and start realizing the freedom of that instead of being sort of in the prison of attachments. But anyway, we need to leave it here. It's 8.34, so we'll just take a few moments, just time to take a breath together. Okay, letting go of the words. Appreciating our spiritual ancestors. The Buddha taught 2,500 years ago. That means there have been many, many generations of women and men who had busy lives, complicated lives, but still did their practice, cultivated this continuity of mindful awareness, woke up, shared what they learned, 
And now we're the lucky recipients of these very functional, profound teachings. So it's our turn in our complicated and busy lives to do the best we can to cultivate this continuity of mindful awareness through daily sitting practice, retreat practice, study, cultivating good friendships with other people who are interested in this mindful awareness so that we can become part of the causes for freedom from suffering. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.